Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us during your lunch break. Um, my name is Laura Martin, and I am an associate at Mins Levin. And I'll let Eric and Ben introduce themselves shortly. But I just want to let you know the topic of our boot camp today is Wire Fraud 101. And we're going to have a dynamic conversation about one of the most powerful tools available for prosecutors. Uh, wire fraud is one of the most frequently prosecuted white collar crimes. And so it's the perfect topic for a boot camp and for a lunchtime training. So if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. I will be monitoring that chat throughout and I will ask your questions. I just want to note that I will not ask Eric about any active cases at his firm, and I will not ask Ben about any active cases at the United States Attorney's Office. So with that, I will turn it over to Ben and Eric to introduce themselves. So Eric, why don't you lead off? Sure. Uh, so nice to meet everyone, and, and thank you for having me here today, Laura. Thank you so much for all the preparation you put into this. Um, Eric Forney, I'm a partner at DLA Piper in the Boston office. Before joining DLA in the middle of 2022, I spent 15 years in the federal government. I was an SEC enforcement and trial attorney, and then I did a stint, um, a, a lengthy stint as a special AUSA, where I prosecuted a variety of types of white collar crimes, including those concerning wire fraud. Ben? Hi, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I echo Eric's comments about uh, thanking Laura for uh, all the work she's done in putting this together. Um, and uh, it's nice to meet you all virtually. Um, I'm an assistant U.S. attorney here at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. I'm in the Securities and Financial Fraud Unit. I've been here since uh, the beginning of 2021. And before that time, I was at uh, Maine Justice in D.C., uh, where I worked on um the, I was in the FCPA unit in the fraud section, so prosecuting international corruption cases. Uh, and before that, I worked at uh, Cleary Gottlieb uh, as an associate in New York, and I clerked for two years as well. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much. So let's just dive right in. So here is the language of the wire fraud statute, 18 U.S.C., Section 1343. And as you can see, it outlaws schemes to defraud that include the use of wire communications. That's put very simply, the language is incredibly broad. Um, but before we go on, I do wanna make one note that much of what we discussed today is actually directly applicable to the mail fraud statute as well. The offenses are essentially the same, except the mail fraud statute involves using the mail in the scheme to defraud. And so, when you look to the courts and the courts and the case law, it shows that the courts tend to view and interpret each statute in a way where one statute does apply to the other. But today we're going to focus on wire fraud, mainly because it's more relevant to our modern communication styles and the modern schemes that are ongoing. And here are the elements of wire fraud. So we'll unpack this a little bit, but essentially you have a scheme to defraud with an intent to defraud with a goal of obtaining some money or other property somehow through the use, while using, excuse me, a wire communication. So when you have a scheme to defraud, the individual is intending to deprive another of something of value by trick, by trick or deceit. 
And essentially, the crime occurs when the scheme is hatched. So Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you at this point. So a scheme does not have to be successful to be prosecuted. Is that true based on your experience? Yeah, so the scheme is complete and, and the crime is complete so long as you have demonstrated an intent to defraud. So you could actually have not defrauded anybody despite your best efforts, or you could actually have your conduct thwarted in the middle of it by, for example, a government action, a sting operation or something akin to it. It, it still means that you've engaged in the crime. And so um, that happens quite frequently, especially with cooperating witnesses or proactive investigations where the government's aware that a crime is afoot, but they don't let actual victims um, as a result of the crime. And they, you know, you, you have enough to sort of convict, notwithstanding the fact that maybe there haven't been victims that were the result of the conduct. Excellent. And Ben, is that, is that true in your current practice now? Or are you finding that you are trying to prevent the completion of the scheme most times? Right. So I, I agree with what, it, what, uh, what Eric said. And I think um, there are kind of two different scenarios. One being when you're aware of something that's going on and you obviously want to, you don't want there to be harm to victims. Another is that if there's an attempt, um, such as a fraudulent application, um, for, for a loan and are you going to charge something where there's been no loss uh, when you aren't, um, you know, dealing with a cooperator or an undercover. And there, I, I think, you know, we exercise some discretion in evaluating those types of cases. Excellent. And a key for these particular types of cases is that the scheme must have an intention to obtain money or property from another. And there's a wide variety of case law on what is considered property for purposes of the wire fraud statute. And that could probably take on an entire hour long presentation. So for purposes of this panel, just know that the courts include both tangible and intangible property rights when evaluating the states. And the most important part is that there's the use of the wires. There has to be a wire communication that's in furtherance of the scheme to defraud. And one of the most interesting things, at least in my perspective, is that it does not have to be, the wire communication that is, does not have to be an essential element of the scheme. It only needs to be an incident to the essential element of the scheme. And so examples of communications that are an incident to an essential element of the scheme would include communications that are designed to lull the victim into a false sense of security or postpone inquiries or postpone complaints about the defendant's conduct or to make the transaction less suspicious. So can either of you discuss a case where the disputed issue concerned whether the wire communication was an incident to an essential, essential element of the scheme? Uh, I'm happy to jump in first. I, th there's not a particular case that comes to mind because because Generally, in my practice, when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office or the SEC, for that matter, the the fact of the wire often was the the really the the bulk of the case, meaning some kind of misrepresentation made in an email or during a telephone call. So usually, even though you're you're of course right that the wire only needs to be incidental to the scheme, often the wire was the thing that was used for purposes of affecting the scheme. That being said, I've certainly had issues in some matters um, where there was real questions about venue and whether the wire actually touched Massachusetts, which you need for venue in a wire fraud case. You can imagine a scenario where perhaps um, there's conduct that affects victims in Massachusetts, but 
a bank transaction may affect some other jurisdiction. And so we would spend a lot of time, and, and Ben, I'm not sure if Ben does this as well, but I would spend a lot of time thinking about what banks were involved, what brokerage firms were involved, what telephone companies were involved, and can we demonstrate that the wires actually in some way touched Massachusetts? Absolutely. Um, you know, that's something you want to be thinking about sooner than, rather than later if you're, uh, uh, you know, in the government. Um, as, a, as a practical matter, um, most, you know, in my experience, a lot of cases, um, if you proceed to trial, uh, the interstate element is often stipulated to. Uh, so it's it's a matter that the parties will agree on in their presentation to the jury. But I've had cases where where it isn't, and we've had to put on a witness um, who will explain, you know, that the uh, bank servers are located in whatever state, uh, and the victim sent the money from a different state, and therefore there was an interstate wire. It, you know, it it can be a live trial issue, um, and it's it's something that you know, it is obviously it's an element of the offense. Um, and so I've, I've had it kind of play out both ways, but it's something that we need to be thinking about and mindful of when we're charging cases uh, to prove it up. That's interesting, Ben. And that actually just brings to mind a, a question. Um, so if, if you have to have a witness come on and testify that the bank server was like located in a different location, does that impact at all the defendant's intent or knowledge? Like if the defendant didn't intend for it to be an interstate transaction, is that something that comes up? Um, no, I, I haven't had that come up and I don't, I don't think it, I, I think that it's, um, I think that it's re, it has to be reasonably foreseeable that it would affect interstate commerce. Um, and I, I think most jurors, I mean, it's certainly is reasonably foreseeable. Uh, whether they know that a bank servers are located in, you know, Texas, Virginia, or wherever. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. Um, usually, I mean, the only specific intent required to be proof of wire fraud is the intent to deceive yeah. and have it engaged in the scheme to defraud. So reasonable foreseeability is the standard for using a wire. And I think most jurors, if not all jurors now, and frankly, usually defense counsel will I guess in my shoes now, I'll, I'll confess, typically stipulate, as Ben said, to wires. I mean, the use of telephones, any banking transaction, any any trade that affects the stock markets is almost certainly going to be interstate. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Okay, so we have moving on to the wire fraud penalties. So essentially, you can receive for each offense, you could receive up to 20 years incarcerated or and or a fine of $250,000 or not more than $250,000. And if the victim is a financial institution, the penalties are more severe. And obviously there's forfeiture or restitution that may apply. Um, one of the most hotly debated topics when it comes to the wire fraud penalties is usually the loss calculation when it comes to sentencing. So the sentencing guidelines, section 2B1.1, applies to the wire fraud convictions. And there's a different, there's a list of different types of enhancements that may apply. And one of those is the loss calculation. And it's hotly debated whether how much loss the defendant caused to the victims. And so Ben, can you give us some insight uh, generally about loss, the loss amount in wire fraud cases? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, 2B1.1 is the, uh, is the place where fraud prosecutors and live. Uh, that's um, 
Uh, and and as uh, Laura mentioned, you know, there are several different enhancements, but you know, it, when you're thinking about right, there's a there's an indictment um, and it outlines certain conduct, that's only some that's that's only possibly part of the loss calculation because um, what what else you're bringing in when it comes time to sentencing, assuming that there's a conviction, is you're talking about relevant conduct as well. So that could be other victims or uh, other applications, other amounts of money that aren't necessarily contemplated by the indictment that come into play. Um, and as, as Laura mentioned, you have both actual loss. So that's you know ill-gotten gains that the defendant or defendants received, as well as intended loss where it's money that they tried to get uh, and failed for whatever reason. And that counts for, um, you know, establishing uh, what the guidelines range is, but of course it's it's litigated as well. I think that sometimes we see defense lawyers, you know, it depends on the case, right? But uh, something that we see is um, analogizing to loss being um, a poor metric of culpability in the same way drug weight is, could be a poor metric of a defendant's culpability. If you don't really know how much money you're getting, I'm not sure it's a perfect analogy, uh, but it's something that we see as as the amount of the gain being, you know, a uh, a poor way of evaluating uh, defendants' uh, culpability, and, and some other things, you know, that that we think about uh, when we're um, calculating the defendant's guidelines are the number of victims that can be an enhancement, whether a victim uh, suffered substantial financial hardship, um, that's another uh, enhancement um, that often gets litigated. Um, oh, there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll, I'll pause there because I'll let Eric jump in. But um, there are there's several different types of enhancements that we think about and that we walk through um, when um, calculating uh, the guidance. Yeah, sure. I guess, Laura, just to add, um, I agree with everything Ben said. I think intended loss is the most complex issue yeah. to assess when it comes to sentencing. I certainly agree with Ben that uh, on the defense side, there's arguments that could be made about whether intended loss is actually reflective of the conduct and really should justify the sentence. Now, of course, if I was back in Ben's shoes, I would say you have the guidelines, but their guidelines are not mandatory. You can look at a variety of other factors to reduce and mitigate, um, which I think makes sense. But, but one of the things that certainly was, I thought, challenging when I was a prosecutor is whether we as a prosecutors actually believe the intended loss was the right approach and, and really really achieving justice. You can imagine a scenario if you have someone on tape talking about the fact that they hope to make a trillion dollars. And if you wanted to be super aggressive, you could say that's their, that's the intended loss because that's what they intended to make. But then you're thinking to yourself, is that really like, that's like a life in prison sentence. Is that really justice under the circumstances? So it actually can be really challenging on both sides of the aisle to come up with a number that makes sense. I appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. And sticking with you for one um, other question about the sentencing enhancements, I see one involves an offense that involves sophisticated means. Could you describe what sophisticated means is in this circumstance? Yeah, so it, it's, you know, it can be many things. It's not necessarily prescriptive. The wire fraud cases I prosecuted were always, were almost always involving a securities fraud nexus as well, just given my experience with the SEC. And so, as you might imagine, with securities fraud and a couple with wire fraud, it generally involves some kind of sophisticated means. 
usually in the kind of cases I was prosecuting when I was a, a, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was cases where parties were concealing their stock ownership using offshore accounts and nominee accounts and, and playing a sort of a shell game in terms of hiding their assets and then making it very challenging to trace funds. So the forensic accounts who were involved had to sort of peel the onion back and go to foreign jurisdictions and figure out where you, you know, can, you can imagine converting money into crypto and the like. And all of what I just described would be very good examples of sophisticated means, but it's not necessarily exhaustive. But that's generally the sort of things that I would, I was dealing with when I was doing that sort of work. Ben, have you seen anything in addition to the examples that Eric just listed that's worth sharing? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I also think that some of these enhancements um, are are important, at least metrics that I think about. And like, is, is this a case that is worthy of federal prosecution, right? Um, because we want to be prosecuting cases where there are multiple victims, where there is a sophisticated scheme. Other enhancements that I've dealt with are, you know, vulnerable victims, uh, people um, that that's an enhancement as well. Uh, someone who could be, for example, um, disabled uh, or um, abuse of trust. That's another uh, abuse of a position of trust is, is another enhancement where someone has a senior role um, at a company and, and uses that role to his or her benefit. Or there also there's an investment advisor enhancement. Uh, if you you know are leading a Ponzi scheme and for investor funds, and, and it, it's kind of dovetails a little bit with abuse of trust, um, where you're taking advantage of your role uh, and the responsibilities that you have. Um, so there, there are a lot of enhancements. And I also think about them, like I was saying at first, as kind of um, metrics as well for evaluating, um, you know, is, is this a case that, that we want to spend time? Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And it's like, it's great to hear that you both, when you were, well, Ben, you're still a prosecutor, but Eric, when you were a prosecutor, it's it's good to hear that when you both were wearing your prosecutorial hats, you're being thoughtful um, when it comes to the both exercising your discretion for charging decisions and, and moving forward in that regard. So it's nice to hear. Yeah, I, I can say working with that office for years that um, it's not sort of what's the most you can get. It's what's right under the circumstances. And I think I think that's yeah. it's incumbent upon the U.S. Attorney's Office to do that. So we touched on this briefly earlier, but when it comes to the wire fraud statute, there's also this other statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 1349, which involves attempt and conspiracy to commit wire fraud offenses. And just wanted to flag this for the viewers. This is something that is frequently charged. I guess I should say the conspiracy prong is frequently charged depending upon the nature of the offenses. And so Ben, can you speak a, a little bit about the interplay between conspiracy to commit wire fraud and also wire fraud in general? Sure, so I mean, conspiracy is a, it's, it's a powerful tool to use uh, when we charge uh, cases. Um, and in the context of wire fraud, where I think it can be especially helpful is um, there are hearsay exceptions that come into play when you charge conspiracy. So uh, co-conspirator statements become admissible. Um, and, and that is really relevant. So an example would be that, you know, if you're charging a, if, if you have a scheme like a, um, some type of online scheme and your defendant is texting with a co-conspirator who is not cooperating and not going to be available, uh, the cooperator's text messages um, will be admissible. 
uh, in evidence, assuming you can make a threshold showing that it's part of the conspiracy. Um, and those kind of communications that people make when they don't think anyone is looking and anyone's paying attention are often really relevant and probative uh, to intent. Thank you. Eric, do you have anything to add? Um, not other than to say that it's it's unusual in my experience to see a criminal indictment out of the white collar group without a conspiracy charge. In addition to the substantive offense, I don't think I've ever seen it unless it's quite literally one person doing something by him or herself, which is generally unusual. And one of the things not up here, but often you'll see as well as a 371 conspiracy charge as well. And there's sort of pros and cons and tactical reasons to include one or the other, but you, you almost always will see a conspiracy charge as part of the indictment. So we just kind of did a, a brief overview of how broad the statute can be, and especially in addition to the conspiracy statute where it could be charged with it as well. There have been some recent Supreme Court cases that appear to actually narrow the broad application of the wire fraud statute. So Ben, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the Bridgegate case, Kelly versus the United States. So a, a fairly uh, recent case, not as recent as uh, Simonelli, um, a 9-0 decision, um, where, as Laura mentioned, the uh, there were challenges to wire fraud that came out of um, Bridgegate for conduct uh, related to the Chris Christie administration when he was then governor of New Jersey. And the, the question before the court, or one of the questions I should say before the court, and they only issued a 13 page opinion, so they gave it kind of the back of the hand, um, was um, whether or not uh, it was, there were lies to obtain property when the property interest in question related to the use of uh, lanes and tolls on the GW George Washington Bridge between New York and New Jersey. And, and what the court found was that um, that it was really more of an exercise of the regulatory power of the state um, and building on prior precedent and that the property at interest that the government set forth, which was, I think, uh, you know, uh, paying for a bogus uh, traffic study and paying for another toll operator, that those were incidental to the scheme. And what I think that makes clear is that the property that you are getting in connection with your scheme uh, has to be the objective of it. It's um, if it's incidental, that's not enough. And if for government action, if it's really an assertion of regulatory power as opposed to something else, um, then then it's not sufficient. Um, so I think you know there there's been developments on that line of um, of thinking uh, since then as well. Excellent, thank you. Eric, can you tackle Simonelli for us? Just provide a nice overview and that would be greatly appreciated. Sure, happy to. And, and by the way, if you caught me smiling, it's because Ben said bogus and I missed that word. It's a, it's a great US Attorney's Office word that I, I just, one of the many things I miss about working there, but that's one of them. I love that word. <laughs> um, I don't think it's used enough, frankly. So Simonelli, I mean, similar kind of vein where the government was um, at least arguably seeking to expand the scope of wire fraud. As you noted, Laura, it's it's quite broad on its face, but there's always opportunities to sort of push the envelope in terms of the scope of it. And Simonelli, 
ultimately the Supreme Court rejected what's uh, this, what was the so-called right to control theory of, of wire fraud also could be applicable, as you noted at the beginning, to mail fraud, which is basically this wire fraud using the mails. Um, it was it had been good law under the Second Circuit, not, although not all circuits accepted it. And the overall idea was that you could convince someone to deploy their assets in a way that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have by essentially tricking them or misleading them into their decision-making process. And that was the gist of this particular case where the defendant was charged with essentially um, rigging the bid associated with the way in which um, government uh, money would be deployed. And so this, the long and short of it is the Supreme Court said that's not a property right. Right to control how someone uses their assets is not a quote property right. To me though, actually the takeaway from this case with, with all due respect to the office that charged that case is I think I think it may have been mischarged. I think the reality is if you look at the facts of that case and a lot of these cases where the government seeks to push the envelope in wire fraud, there's probably opportunities for more traditional just straightforward wire fraud. And, and ironically at, at the appellate level, the US Attorney's Office essentially argued, well, we could have proven and would have proven straight wire fraud anyway. And the court didn't necessarily disagree. They just said, you didn't present it to the jury Therefore, we can't uphold a conviction based on evidence the jury didn't hear, or at least instructions they didn't receive. So I guess the takeaway here is right to control is no longer good law. And But, you know, the, the government probably could pursue other opportunities and similar fact patterns if they chose to. Excellent. Thank you so much. On that note, we'll go to um, some related criminal provisions. So we're not going to go into much detail here, but it's important to be aware that the conduct underlying um, a wire fraud, a potential wire fraud charge may overlap with a surprising number of other federal criminal statutes. And we listed a few on the slide. And I, I just want to note that if we have time at the end, we'll chat a little bit about honest services fraud. But one thing I do want to touch on is what is a predicate offense? And I'll throw it out to either Eric or Ben to answer that question. I'm happy to, to jump in first and Ben, Ben, please uh, correct me or, or jump in too. But predicate offense generally comes up in the context typically of money laundering, where, but it, it's not maybe exclusive to that, but at least in my work, when I was doing this sort of work, it came up in the context of money laundering. So money laundering at a high level, there's specific statutory provisions that have different elements, but at a high level, as I think we all probably know from, from watching TV and the like, it's moving money that is either illicit proceeds or designed to conceal the source of the income or the money from one account to another. And um, generally you need to prove an underlying, what's, what's called a statutory offense, underlying statutory offense, um, or I guess it's a statutory underlying offense, SUA if memory serves. And wire fraud is a good example. And there's an argument, I remember thinking this when I was at the attorney's office, I don't, I don't wanna necessarily encourage Ben to do this, but since we're being transparent here, there's an argument that every time there's wire fraud, there's probably a money laundering charge that could be brought. The reality is U.S. Attorney's Office generally doesn't bring money laundering because they have to prove more, but it could still nonetheless be, as talked about earlier, it's another example of a statutory enhancement from sentencing for sentencing factors, even if not proven beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, um, typically. So that's how, when I think of a predicate offense, that's how I think about it. I agree with that. I'm not sure I have much more to uh, to add to that. Perfect. Well, we'll stick right with you, Ben, and we'll have a general discussion about your insights of prosecuting wire fraud generally. Um, how do you how do you come to investigate or bring such cases? If you can kind of give us 
the life cycle of investigation to charge, that would be appreciated. Sure, sure. And I'll, um, we, we could spend an entire uh, <laughs> presentation on this. But um, I mean, if, if you think about you know, prosecutors tool belt, wire fraud is, you know, the most versatile tool I think that we have. Um, it often, you know, on, on facts, you could charge wire fraud, mail fraud, bank fraud. Um, and you know, wire fraud is probably the most common and versatile charge that we have. And how do we investigate it? And um, I mean, that's really kind of like, that's a big part of the fun part of being a prosecutor is the investigation into into these frauds. Um, the, we, we get wind of cases in a variety of different ways. Uh, it could be bank reporting, it could be um, a victim getting in touch with a law enforcement agency. Uh, it could be, you know, mining open source, the Boston Globe, Boston Herald, and, and finding something um, that piques our interest. And in terms of investigating it, I mean, I, I think you could think about it maybe in two different ways. Uh, I mean, when I think about wire fraud, I'm thinking it, it's an oversimplification. But what I'm thinking about really is lies for money. Um, and so one, it, one thread is investigating the lies and one is kind of what happens with the money. Um, for the lies there, it depends if you, there's a paper case or if you have victims, but um, you wanna to talk to victims if you have them to see, uh, you wanna have the agents talk to victims to uh, understand um, how they were deceived, how they were tricked into sending money. Uh, if they have communications, you want them to share those with you if they can. Uh, if you're not really in that posture, you know we have tools, we can use search warrants, uh, to get different types of communications that um, uh, subjects or targets of the investigation could be using. Um, we can get uh, supporting documentation like tax returns or other things to show inconsistencies as well. And then with respect to money, it's really, you know, it's grand jury work. It's, it's getting bank records. Um, it's doing financial analysis to see what happens when someone gets the money. And if they say if they're representing that they're going to use it for a legitimate purpose, showing how it's being spent illegitimately. Um, and, you know, Eric was talking about money laundering. I mean, we, we have 1956. We also have 1957, which is an unlawful monetary transaction. And we often see that in wire fraud cases where, you know, if you get fraudulent proceeds and then you have a transaction of $10,000 or more, it's another charge. It's, it's a it can be a, a sentencing enhancement as well when you're doing guidelines calculations. So like if you dupe someone into sending you $25,000 and then you use that money to buy a used car, uh, that's a 1957 violation. So those, hopefully that's somewhat responsive, but if you think about kind of the, the two different threads um, that, that we're using or that we're pulling um, to, to get enough evidence to charge a case. Excellent, thank you. Eric, before I move on to general discussion of defending clients, do you wanna put your prosecutor hat back on for a few minutes and share anything else? My banners make me miss it. Um, it is, <laughs> it, everything you said is exactly on point. I mean, it's about building a case from, from the start to finish that, and at least in my view, I would wanna build cases that I thought could be supported by the documents. And then you fill in a few gaps with maybe a cooperating witness here or there. But I, I generally didn't like to rely on cooperating witnesses exclusively. Um, you want corroboration. So, so much of it is in these white collar cases, they're heavy paper cases. 
and you could have hundreds of exhibits at one of these trials. And so, so much of it is based on exactly what Ben described. The other thing I'll just say, just to plug my old, my old colleagues, is another significant source of U.S. Attorney's Office cases is referrals from the SEC yeah. or other regulators. Absolutely, uh, and, and and other components of of DOJ as well. Um, you know, there there are other cases that we we partner on with, um, whether it be the fraud section um, or. MLR is the Money Laundering Asset Recovering Unit. Um, that, that's an important point as well. Excellent. Thank you. So defending clients charged with wire fraud. Eric, I have a few examples of some defenses that defendants could raise. Can you just speak a little bit generally about defending clients charged with wire fraud? Yeah, I mean, it, it it necessarily is going to be issue and case specific. I mean, in some cases, and I'm, I'm going to assume for the sake of the question, we're talking about the thing in a trial, there's all sorts of pre, you know, discovery issues that could be, or pre-trial issues that could be raised, anything from the uh, the, the appropriateness of search warrants um, and whether evidence is admissible, motions eliminate, motions to sever, all sorts of things that could frankly make it a little more challenging to prove a case. But let's assume we get to the point of trial, case hasn't been severed, and, and the government has the case that it intended to indict and now intends to prove. Obviously, wire fraud, the number one thing that I think is the focal point is typically the intent piece, because it's so hard to get into someone's mind and to know what they're thinking. And so generally, you prove intent, you try to, by circumstantial evidence. But one thing to be clear, and, and this is where sound jury instructions come in, that even even a high degree of recklessness, negligence, any of those things, it's, that's not an intent to deceive. One could maybe argue that a high degree of recklessness might be akin to willful blindness, but it's really not. And so, you know, distinguishing that, making that clear to a jury is important too. Some of these other things, I think Ben's gonna talk about good faith. Um, I'll just say quickly from my perspective, good faith is obviously an absolute defense. And so if you have the capacity to assert advice of counsel or reliance in a way that's credible, that's great. I mean, the downside is to do that you might have to take the stand, which rarely if ever happens in a criminal prosecution. So those are some of the pros and cons. I see materiality up on the screen. Obviously, we've talked about that. I, I think the reality is materiality, um, not suggesting that defense counsel ought to concede that. You should argue all the points you think are effective, but materiality is generally not an issue. Usually, if the, if the government thinks you've lied, they think you've lied about something that matters. And usually that's something that is um, not necessarily stipulated to, to the same, to the same extent interstate conduct might be but it's often not something really litigated. I, I wouldn't suggest to a client that we ought to defend the case by saying, yeah, we lied, but it didn't matter. Um, not necessarily a good strategy. So as a general matter, every case is a little different, but let me stop there and see if Ben wants to jump in. Sure, yeah, no, I um, th that's all right. And I think, you know, touching on materiality as well, I think that if you are contesting that, it, it can get a little bit into a, a blame the victim um, situation, which I think as a defense lawyer, probably want to avoid. Um, and I think more often than not, right, what um, what we see is um, it is good faith where a crime, it's hard to it's hard to contest that a victim has been duped out of uh, their money, right? I mean, it happened. Uh, we're going to put them on and they're going to say that it happened and that they relied upon misrepresentations um, to to get separated from their money. Uh, and so where we see good faith, and I, I can give an example, is in these fraud schemes, these conspiracies, as we've been talking about before, um, 
you know, a lot of these conspiracies rely upon someone to be owning and operating a bank account to receive these fraud proceeds. They're not often the ones who are doing the defrauding, uh, but you need someone here in the U.S. to open an account and get the money, take a cut and pass it on. And sometimes the defense we see that is that, hey, I thought that this was a legitimate business opportunity. I was operating in good faith. I didn't know that I was doing anything wrong. I wasn't the one who was doing actually the defrauding. And, you know, that's an argument that gets made. Um, there are a variety of reasons why I don't think it's particularly compelling. I mean, we can point to circumstantial evidence about, uh, you know, you can ask how effective that is in practice, but I'm interested. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so th th that that's where I've seen it um, come up. I think that there there is, as Eric noted, right, I mean, there can be willful blindness, which is, you know, putting your head in the sand and, and on purpose, not asking too many questions, not wanting to get too many facts. Uh, but there are other things that we can point to. I mean, we can use cooperator testimony. Uh, we can, um, you know, and there are other facts like if you get money, if you get fraudulent money, you want to get rid of it fast. You don't let it just sit in your bank account um, because, you know, you could get caught. Um, what are some other things? Um see oh and then you know the amount of money that you might get paid for brokering the transaction or being someone who gets money and then passes it on if you think about right how much does it cost to go to the bank and send an international wire versus how much money are you getting paid uh to uh to help out here and uh that's also suggestive of, of criminality as well so um good faith is common it's something that we often get to um it's something that we kind of talk about in jury instructions and a lot of times defense counsel wants it to be a uh, standalone jury instruction. Uh, the First Circuit says it, does, it doesn't have to be a standalone jury instruction. Some judges will give it nonetheless. Others will include it within um, the intent portion of the wire fraud instructions. Uh, it's something that, you know, I think defense lawyers want to highlight uh, or, or really try to highlight. It may be something that they open on or something that they kind of try to develop as the case progresses. The other thing I'll just add quickly is, and this isn't specific to wire fraud, but, but really the major defense of any one of a white collar case is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, regardless of whether it's wire fraud or mail fraud or securities fraud, is whether the government has actually proven its case. So most, at least when I was prosecuting cases, most offenses weren't necessarily about a counter narrative, such as good faith, or about, you know, I legitimately believe this bank account was being used for a legitimate business. Most of them are about, here's the 15 holes in the government's case, and it doesn't add up to beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. I, I appreciate that. And I think when I, there's a case I wanted to discuss with you both, um, the Elizabeth Holmes case. I think this falls into, if I recall correctly, she, her defense was she never intended to mislead anyone. She thought the product was doing well. Um, Eric, can you provide an overview? I mean, it didn't work. She was convicted. But Eric, can you provide an overview of her case in defense? Sure, I'm happy to. And and for those of you who have followed this over the years, there's no shortage of Netflix documentaries and books and other other pieces of background. The big picture, Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, she's she became famous over the years as being um, young, obviously brilliant entrepreneur who started a company that was supposed to revolutionize testing based on taking a small blood sample and be able to detect very quickly whether you may have any number of potential diseases. And it sounded great and it sounded so great. She was able to raise, I think quite literally billions of dollars from various investors 
who thought it was going to be the next big thing. The, the problem, it turned out, at least as proven at trial, was that what she was saying wasn't reality, wasn't based on reality. And so her defense was that she believed what she said, which is a kind of kind of akin to I didn't have an intent to deceive. Like I had a good faith belief in what I said, and maybe I was wrong with the benefit of hindsight. So that was effectively her defense. I mean, the other aspect of her defense, I think it's sort of relevant for wire fraud. It comes up all the time in securities fraud too, is forward-looking statements and whether forward-looking statements can be prosecuted, meaning here's what I think will happen in the future versus a you know, retrospective statement, meaning here's what's happened in the past. Forward-looking statements are generally protected under the law. You're allowed to say, I predict I will do X, and you're allowed to be wrong about that. But you have to have a good faith basis to say it though. And that was ultimately her issue, at least according to the, the prosecution and the jury, which was that there was a there was a myriad of information, real-time information that she was aware of that completely contradicted what she was saying. And I mean, one of her problems was probably that she is so brilliant that it's hard to buy that she didn't understand the contradictory information more likely, if not beyond a reasonable doubt, just ignored it and said what she had to say to raise money. And so she'd been convicted. Uh, I think she's currently incarcerated, although I can't remember offhand, but I know there's various appeals that have been filed, but she she was convicted of, uh, I believe, all the all the claims, including securities fraud, wire fraud, obviously, as well, which is the focal point of today's meeting, and she was charged in parallel by the SEC. Thank you. And we're actually running short on time, so I'm going to skip the next slide because I want to get us right to common schemes before we move on to trends. Mm -hmm. Um Okay, so common schemes. So telemarketing schemes usually involve the someone calls you, a fraudster calls you up, offers a victim a large sum of money in exchange for small advance payment that falls under the advance fee fraud scheme. I actually recently myself received a call from a scammer posing as a member of, I can't remember what agency it was, um, Customs. A member of Customs, they had obtained a package with my name on it from a Mexican address that was filled with a lot of drugs. And if I gave them $25,000, they, <laughs> they would make sure that I wouldn't have to show up in court. And obviously I did not give anyone $25,000, but these types of schemes, I, I can see how someone who is not as entombed could fall into it. Um, the person called me and gave me a badge number, gave me a callback number gave me indications that made me believe that this was actually a real situation until he continued talking and I realized it clearly was not. But you can see how someone who's more vulnerable could fall for something like this. So, and you've also heard of the Nigerian prince scam and stuff like that. I will say it just strikes me as difficult that these types of crimes can be investigated and, and prosecuted. Like how would what are the tools in a prosecutor's like toolkit to be able to track down these scammers who are roping people in via phone calls or social media posts or things like that? I, I don't know, Ben. It, it just strikes, strikes me as a little difficult to investigate and prosecute. And I was just wondering if you could provide any insight on these like telemarketing schemes or these phishing schemes and how a prosecutor um, goes after people for that type of scam. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, two that I'll highlight in particular, um, one are, are romance fraud schemes and another are business email compromise schemes that, that affect very different types of, of victims. Um, and as perhaps a, a plug for, you know, doing any type of public service work, whether it's working at 
in my office or the SEC or in DA's office is, you know, one of the more meaningful parts is getting to to work and advocate for victims. I mean, we don't represent them, um, but we uh, are seeking some kind of uh, vindication or justice for what's happened to them. And, and we see this in, in romance fraud schemes where you have victims who meet people on the internet, they're looking for companionship, they're often older, um, and uh, they get taken advantage of. Uh, and they send money um, by wire, by money order, uh, to someone who isn't who they think they are. Um, and in terms of how we investigate it, you know, uh, we we can we can start with the victim, we can follow the money, uh, we can see where the money goes. Uh, if someone is communicating with someone else, either by phone or by email, uh, we can look at IP addresses, uh, we can, um, you know, do email search warrants. There, there are a variety of, of tools you can do. There are limits when, you know, money is being sent overseas. There are jurisdictional limits and kind of different types of cooperation that we get from different foreign jurisdictions. So sometimes you can hit a wall. Uh, but in talking about um, enhancements, I mean, there's another enhancement if a large part of the scheme takes place internationally overseas. And perhaps that recognizes the difficulties um, and limits to what we can do. And we also, you know, there are these business email compromise schemes, which also are, are really um you know, I, I think a, 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 there are great cases, uh, they're really unfortunate cases, but great cases to, to prosecute uh, where you have businesses that are fall victim to phishing schemes or email spoofing, and they are working with a vendor and the vendor says, hey, you know what, or someone impersonating a vendor says, we're now receiving money at this account as opposed to that account. And the money never gets to the intended place. And at a, at a certain point, you know, large amounts of money don't go missing without someone noticing it, right? And it's a question of how fast we can get involved to try to disrupt it or try to trace it. Um, and so and so, I, I think that these are, um, look, there are people being taken advantage of on all types of internet schemes all the time, uh, and not all of them, as Laura mentioned, um, you know, have the sophistication and wherewithal to know that it's a fraud. Uh, and so it's it's really, it's really unfortunate to see. It is, I, I definitely agree. Um, we also have on the slide the Ponzi schemes, which I think a lot of people who are interested in white collar context, generally crimes generally are fully aware of what a Ponzi scheme is. You know, it misleads investors by you know, suggesting that the profits are derived from legitimate business activities. Um, they're leveraging new investments to fabricate or supplement these profits. So they need to, it's a pyramid scheme because they need to get the money from new investors to pay old investors and it just keeps growing. And they can be a very long running scheme as long as the mastermind can continue to have investors contribute. And I think one of the most famous Ponzi schemes is the Madoff situation. Eric, can you provide some insight into the Bernie Madoff case? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, I, I think you're right. It probably is the most famous Ponzi scheme. I was I was in the Boston office of the SEC uh, the morning of our holiday party in December of two, 2008, I think, when this hit. And it, you know, Boston was one of the first offices that got the referral about Madoff and eventually was referred to New York. But we there was a lot of a lot of running around trying to figure out what happened and who knew what. And and of course, we had this whistleblower, Harry Markopoulos, who's now written books about having referred it. And 
it's led to a lot of changes in the way the government cooperates and, and shares information. But it, it, the short of it is Madoff was just one of many Ponzi schemes. There's nothing unique and special about his Ponzi scheme, except that it affected the rich and famous. And he himself had significant roles in the securities industry. But he made it seem like he was getting outlandish returns based on a brokerage business that never existed. And so he uh, was sentenced to, I think, multiple life prison sentences. It, it destroyed his family. Um, but in total, there's been various accounts for how much he raised. And it's hard in positive scenes because most of it's fictitious money. But it was, it was uh, you know, at the time, the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. And certainly an example of a classic way you can commit wire fraud. Excellent. So we'll move on to enforcement trends moving forward. And I have three categories here and we are running short on time. So we, won't, we may not be able to dive into all of them, but Ben, I definitely would like you to speak about COVID fraud and what you're seeing now. Sure, sure. And I'll, um, I'll keep it short, but um, I, I think it's not really a secret uh, how much uh, uh, fraud there was in connection with all the different relief programs that the government uh, issued uh, provided during the pandemic. And we see it in terms of um, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, other types of business loans like the EIDL or Restaurant Revitalization Fund, state unemployment as well that was provided, you know, in Massachusetts, New York, I think, I think pretty much every state was offering uh, unemployment benefits. And the fraud has been, you know, it's been rampant. Uh, and um, we have, I think, you know, we've prosecuted a, a good amount of cases out of this office. I think nationwide, there's been a lot of cases. There's a there's a task force that was created to just focus on this type of fraud. Um, and we were talking before about, you know, conspiracies. And in these cases, it's often just a single actor. I mean, sometimes we, you see conspiracies and rings of people involved uh, with COVID fraud, but other times it's just an individual uh, who saw an opportunity to try to get some easy money, either by using a defunct business uh, to get a loan or um, just lying about um, what the business actually did to get a loan or uh, to get money. Um, so it's uh, it, it's rampant, I think, or at least it was rampant. Um, and I think we're, we're the government interest in it as well is that it's, um, you know, it it was a safety net that was created for people who needed money during the pandemic um, and all the fraud related to it. And if those folks aren't held accountable, I think undermines um, public you know, faith in those programs. And to kind of tether to what we've been talking about today, you know, what we can use wire fraud to charge all these cases because either the um, we can charge either the submission of the application because you know, uh, the Small Business Administration servers are located in whatever other state is different than Massachusetts, or we can charge the wire that the SBA relied on. You know, they relied on material misrepresentations to then send a wire. So, you know, the SBA is banking at Bank of America. The money goes to TD Bank. Um, they're, you know, we, we're often charging, I, I think, pretty much almost exclusively charging these as, as wire fraud cases. Excellent, thank you. And Eric, I'd love to hear a little bit about your insight on insider trading. And if you could touch on the interplay between what the what charges the DOJ can bring versus what charges the SEC could bring, that would be very helpful too. 
Sure. And I'll be brief. I'm, I'm conscious of time, but in terms of enforcement trends, it's it's hard to find an example of a securities fraud case that isn't also wire fraud. I used to sort of think to myself that securities fraud is just wire fraud involving a security. And so you can always look at the enforcement priorities that are published every year by the SEC. And there's this there's regular routine cooperation between SEC offices and US attorneys offices. And so the SEC in particular will continue to prioritize insider trading, especially under this administration, which among others is, is co is co-led by the former head of the market of use unit, which is the SEC specialized insider trading unit. The difference is that the US Attorney's Office arguably has broader authority to charge insider trading. The SEC is limited to a particular provision of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which is under Title 15 of the US Code. The US Attorney's Office can use that in addition to using Title 18, including wire fraud, and they have. There was an argument um, that the US Attorney's Office, when using wire fraud, would actually, ironically, despite having a higher burden of proof, have to prove less elements when charging insider trading under wire fraud. That I think has been called into question under our Second Circuit line of cases, but it's still an interesting approach that the U.S. Attorney's Office could consider taking. And if nothing else, Title 18 generally gives the U.S. Attorney's Office a basis for longer periods of incarceration based on the way the statutes are written. The other thing I'll add is in the crypto space, you, you've seen prosecutions uh, the last couple of years in cryptocurrency trading under the allegations of insider trading. And the advantage the U.S. Attorney's Office has is they don't need to establish the underlying crypto assets or securities which in and of itself for anyone watching this space knows that's a huge question um, when the SEC and the market continues to debate. From a US Attorney's Office perspective, whether this, their securities or not, if they can establish the elements of insider trading that concern any asset, regardless of whether it's a security, they, they arguably have a basis for a wire fraud claim. And you've seen that the last couple of years, whereas the SEC's basis for bringing insider trading or any cases concerning crypto has to be limited to jurisdiction over securities. And they'd have to establish the underlying crypto asset is a security. But they believe me, they're trying. They, they have a new crypto unit. They're adding more people to it regularly. So um, there'll be more enforcement there by the SEC, which means more referrals to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Excellent. Thank you so much. So I'm just going to check the chat. Anyone has any questions? I, we have like 60 seconds left. Um, we may be able to answer them. But otherwise... I just wanna say thank you so much, Eric and Ben, for your time. I greatly appreciate you taking your lunch break um, to train our more junior and mid-level associates or um, attorneys who are interested in white collar matters. We greatly appreciate your time. And I will check the chat. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, seeing no questions, I think here is a appropriate point to end the panel. So thank you so much for participating and thank you everyone for watching during your lunch.